and welcome to Legal Voices, Meritas' official podcast channel where we bring to you industry-related legal updates. In our latest series, Mario Torres, lawyer at Meritas member firm Brazo Seller and co-chair of Meritas' Latin America and Caribbean Cannabis Law Group, interviews lawyers from around the world to learn more about how each jurisdiction is handling cannabis and marijuana legalization. Before I hand it off to Mario, and for those of you who are new to Meritas, Meritas is an established global alliance of closely connected yet independent law firms that each offer a full range of high-quality specialized legal services. We were built upon a rigorous system for monitoring and enhancing the quality of our member firms and have been connecting clients with carefully qualified business legal expertise in over 250 markets around the world since 1990. Hi everyone, welcome to our seventh episode. This is a very special episode because we will be speaking with Willem van Rensburg, who is an expert on the UN conventions on narcotic drugs, which have an impact on the legalization of cannabis around the world. Willem is part of the firm of the Chambers of Ermila Bulel in Mauritius, and he has studied this topic extensively, writing his LLM dissertation on it. We're very lucky to have Willem and his expertise and analysis. Willem, welcome. So we're here today with Willem van Rensburg from our Meritas affiliate in Mauritius. Willem, welcome back. Nice to see you. Thank you very much, Mario. Nice to see you again. Thank you very much for the opportunity. No, my my pleasure. So Willem, uh, let's dive right into what is certainly an area of your expertise and something that is really important for the industry on, on a global scale because today's episode will really focus on the UN conventions and what impact that can uh, and is having on, on the global cannabis industry. So, so really, let's just b- begin at the beginning, as they say. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, sort of a, the, the, the history of the conventions and how cannabis got to be in there and what, what the state is now? Maybe that'd be a good place to begin. Right. And Mario, I'm going to to do this part as short as possible because I want to get to the solution instead of the problem. But unfortunately, we always have to start with the conventions as as being a problem at this stage. Now, drugs are regulated by three international conventions. These are the uh, the what we refer to as a single convention on narcotic drugs, which was signed in 1961 and updated later. 1971 convention on psychotropic uh, substances. And then the 1988 UN Convention on Illicit Traffic in Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic uh, Substances. So if I can just uh, shortly, and this is very simplified, the single convention regulates drugs. The 1971 convention regulates substances that are used in the manufacturing of drugs, or synthetic uh, drugs. And then the 1988 con Convention covers everything to do with the supply chain of drugs. Um, in other words, uh, you know, trade of it, transport of it, uh, speeding of it, and all of that. So ju- that's a very simplified version of the three conventions. Now, the conventions started as talks in uh, as early as 1935, 1945, and between countries who felt they needed to be some regulation of drugs in general. South Africa, for instance, was one of the countries who highlighted the its perceived danger that cannabis would hold, and Egypt was also one of the first players. But really, at the end, the conventions were driven by the USA and Russia and bigger entities like these. 
And somewhere along that route, it was decided that cannabis was the worst of all drugs, one of the worst of all drugs. And there was no actual scientific study to support this. It was more of a the sign of the times or the or the, the perception at the time that cannabis was wrong and cannabis was was a was a bad drug. It made you crazy. That some said, and all sorts of things. And and this was not uh, based on any science. Would it but have been as a result of this, cannabis was placed on that it was uh, that it was widely available or that it was uh, you know used in. Uh, maybe let's call it maybe not popular culture, but that that it was a, a maybe a known drug at the time. Would, would that be why it made it on the list from your analysis? Yes. Look, firstly, all drugs were supposed to be covered, and and so that was the intention, and it's also what happened. But cannabis was widely known, and in some countries, it was experienced as a major problem. But for instance, in the USA, it was perceived as a problem associated with poverty and there was concerns about classes of people mixing uh, these drugs and, and getting involved in cannabis. So it, it was basically perceived as a baseline bad drug and also very addictive. And on top of that, it was also seen and some people still today see it as a gateway drug. Uh, you know, you start with cannabis and then you go towards uh, more serious drugs. So it was in a big way politically motivated and motivated by perception at the times. Unfortunately, cannabis was really affected maybe worse than many other drugs because the conventions contained schedules. So drugs, according to the, the danger that they have and the addiction, you know, how easily you get addicted to it, is grouped in schedules. And cannabis was grouped in the worst of these schedules. The worst, for instance, heroin is, was scheduled uh, with, with cannabis. So not only did cannabis make it onto the drug conventions, it was also really put in the really, really bad corner of the conventions. So at the moment, the conventions didn't change much. The conventions are still the way they are, the 1988 convention being the last one, the single convention being the first one that was signed in 19. 61 was amended in 1971 and that's that's the last of it now mm -hmm. some small concessions were made but the conventions the wording of the conventions didn't change much in 2020 cannabis was finally after much much of a struggle uh, declassified and now it's not in the most uh, strict schedule anymore but it is in the a little lower <laughs> it's still on this in the schedules of cannabis prohibition it's just not in the very worst of schedules and the difference this brings is that the schedule where it was pertained to drugs that had no potential value to humanity for instance specifically medicinal value and now it was recognized that cannabis actually do have does have or could have medical benefits and this obviously is, is uh, long overdue seeing as how many countries have already legalized cannabis for medical purposes uh, many years ago so this is where we are at the moment regarding the conventions. Now, the last thing that I can say about that is that the approach of the conventions was to eradicate all drugs. So we referred to those conventions as the prohibitionist approach. So we will prohibit everything, no use, no trade, no nothing. All possible drugs will be prohibited. So the idea was to eradicate drugs within 25 years of from 1961, uh, but obviously that never happened. And um, over time, some countries sooner than others, but over time, 
more and more countries came to realize that this is simply not working. You can never eradicate all drugs. And this is why a lot of countries, the shift is happening towards shouldn't rather regulate the drugs than, than prohibit it entirely. But unfortunately at the moment and for the foreseeable future, the drug conventions simply do not allow this. So Will, which leads to the next uh, point or question is, we, we have the conventions as, as you've detailed and, and you've given us some detail about them, but we see countries legalizing cannabis, obviously Canada where I am and different countries uh, earlier and certain states before. So uh, how is this legalization occurring within the, um, the context of, of the existence of these conventions? Yeah, this is very interesting. So for instance, in the Netherlands started doing this in 1976 already, if I remember correctly, and Portugal also long ago, many countries did so uh, long ago already. But what they did is the conventions specified that a country must criminalize the use of drugs or drugs in general. And what they did is two different approaches here. Portugal said, okay, we are taking drugs out of the criminal sphere instead in, in terms of fines and punishments. So in Portugal, if you are caught with drugs, you will be punished, but it would be an administrative fine. You won't get a criminal record or it would be rehabilitation, forced rehabilitation. So instead of having it in the criminal sphere, it is still illegal, but you don't get punished by going to jail or, or also and getting a criminal record. So what that's referred to as decriminalization. Now the International Drug Policy Control, uh, the International Drug Control Board initially was very much against this, but then later recognized that, okay, this falls within the flexibilities of the drug conventions. You can do this because it is still technically illegal. The Netherlands took another approach. What they did is they said, no, it's definitely criminal. We are not taking it out of the criminal sphere. However, to a certain extent, we will not enforce this law. Uh, and in the Netherlands and both of these countries, this pertains only to small quantities for personal use. In the Netherlands, you buy these at licensed places uh, referred to as, as the Dutch coffee shops. So you can also not buy it everywhere. So this is very restricted. It's a certain freedom that these countries have in terms of that, but it's not a real legalization. It's not a real regulation. It is a, I don't want to say loophole, but it is allowed under the con conventions. And these countries make use of these allowances in the in the convention or flexibilities to have a sort of a legalization in these uh, in their countries other countries like spain do the same in a different way but i i don't have time for all the examples at the moment so this is what countries did up to 2030. and, and out of curiosity what uh, let's say you you didn't find these uh, approaches what are the sanctions what could happen to a country that uh, didn't take the the Portugal or Netherlands approach, and maybe we'll get to that later. But I, the the question just popped in my mind: What teeth does it, do the conventions yeah, we'll, have? I guess. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly get to it next because that's what happened with Uruguay in 2013, and that's what happened is happening with Canada now, who legalized in 2018. But to answer your question, sanctions. We have to remember that when you breach an international convention, you are really breaking international law. Uh, now, you can't put a country in prison, of course, but you can impose sanctions. You can even remove the country from the, uh, its membership from the conventions. And that is a big thing, because remember, we're talking about cannabis here, but the international drug conventions are about all drugs, not only about cannabis. So if a country, and almost all countries are part of this, all the UN countries are part of these conventions and, and some others as well. So 
once a country is no longer under those conventions, there's all kinds of downsides to that. And you are not protected in terms of all any other drug as well. So not to be part of the conventions is also not really a viable option for a country, especially a country like Canada. But as I said, we'll get to that in a while. Yeah, and so let, let's then back up a sec. So what, what issues did you identify or have you identified with the approach taken by the Netherlands or Portugal or Spain, the, the let's call it the walking the line approach um, as far as staying uh, kind of on side, but also, as we know, uh, pr provide, providing some access to, to patients and or uh, adult use users. So, so what were the issues with that? And, and, and or what, are, what is, in your opinion, the issues with that? Yeah, the issues with that is when you walk a line, the line has to be, uh, you can't cross the line. It's, it's, you can walk on the edge of the abyss, but if you, once, you, once you go too far, you fall down. So, so that's the problem is that you have limitations there. And mainly the problem with these two, two approaches and others is that you can operate inside the conventions as far as you regulate private use of the product and small quantities. So now let's look at the the alternative. If you say that you feel that regulating cannabis is much better than prohibiting cannabis, then you can't restrict it only to small quantities and private use. You have to then regulate everything. And that's the problem. Once you start to say, okay, I want to regulate the whole market. I want to impose rules for marketing, for you know, advertising, for um, safety of the product, all of these things that has to do with the supply chain other than use. I mean, and this is a problem that they have in, in, in the Netherlands, for instance, is that you can buy cannabis in a coffee shop, but who's going to supply it to the coffee shop? That's illegal because trade is illegal. So the, who's going to produce it because production is illegal? So that's the, these are some of the limitations. So if you, if you can't regulate the production of cannabis, you can't regulate the trade in cannabis, the supply chain, that is the problem. Then you can't really say that you are regulating cannabis. So the conventions might tolerate it to a point, but not that far. Yeah, because if, if I'm understanding, it puts a certain part of the entire supply chain offside and only the, the let's call it the front end personal use and kind of removes the the sanctions or the, the, the penalties for individuals to do it. So it creates a bit of a, a hybrid a, a model, which, which, which is to be honest, something that we had kind of in Canada prior to legalization. So which, which brings me to my next question. We did see entire nations legalize and regulate everything in cannabis. And, and the two nations that obviously come to mind are the, the first two and talking about Uruguay and uh, Canada. Can you talk to us a little bit about how these two nations uh, specifically, despite being uh, parties to these conventions, legalized cannabis, regulated all, and now currently have full-on industry in place at the very least. I can't speak directly for Uruguay, but I know in Canada we have uh, an industry um, underway. Certainly it's, it's in its infancy, but uh, it's, it's here. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Uh, let me start this way. We have the drug conventions on the one hand, which is very important and, and, and which is the topic of this conversation to a large extent. But on the other hand, we also have the human rights treaties. And human rights treaties, many academics argue, 
are above the drug conventions. They have to be interpreted in light of the human rights treaties because the UN convention states that, or the UN charter states that uh, human rights uh, treaties are above all other treaties. So, so what these countries are doing is they are saying that, look, we believe the welfare of our citizens or our subjects living in the country are better protected by regulating cannabis than prohibiting it. So therefore they are using the right to health and welfare of their society and saying that this is why we believe it should be regulated. Uh, to a point that is also what the Netherlands and Portugal is doing, but they are restricting that to the right to privacy and the right to privacy allows you to do stuff in private. And, and that's why that's, that's also a problem. Now, Uruguay uh, was an interesting case because the president at the time decided to, uh, and the government at the time decided to legalize it against the opinion of the public. Uh, most of the people did not want it legalized. So, but they, they, there was a lot of, you know, and still probably is a lot of drug wars going around that part of the world. And Uruguay wanted to make sure that it could combat this, that it could produce its own product, which would be safer and regulated. But that is very much regulated by government. It is not the kind of industry that we see in Canada. So the INCB was very, uh, and Russia and China and a lot of countries were very outspoken about this, but nothing really came of it. Uruguay was not banned from the conventions or extradited from it. it, nothing happened, no sanctions. But then in 2018, when Canada did it, now it's a different story and the world is talking about it. A lot of shifts uh, was made since then. For instance, the first two US states to legalize cannabis did so also in 2013, Colorado and Washington state. Um, mm -hmm. so, so before Uruguay did it, there wasn't really anybody else who had, who had done it before. So that's very significant, but as far as development is concerned, the world digested that information until Canada then in 2018 decided to legalize. And that's why we focus on Canada also because it's, a, it's a economically a much more significant world force than Uruguay was. But Canada is also the first country to openly admit that it is breaching the drug conventions, but it is doing so in the conviction that it is better for its citizens to do so. And, and that is maybe the difference between these countries is that uh, Canada is not trying to say, look, we are actually operating within the conventions. Actually, we're not really breaching them because we're doing this or that. They are saying that, look, we are breaching it, but we are willing to cooperate with our partner countries in the conventions to find a solution. And this will take the drug, uh, the issue of cannabis legalization forward because now somebody is finally looking for a solution that hopefully will benefit all countries intending to go this route and not only one country. Yeah, so so that so that's why Canada did it and you can see the results of that. But maybe just one final point on that particular question. Academics refer to this state that we are in now as principled non-compliance. So whilst Canada is admitting that it's not complying with the law, international law. It is doing so because of a strong principle that's based in human rights. And therefore, it's not as if Canada is just con contravening the conventions because it feels like it, if you want to put it that way. There's a very good reason for it. And this is now the gray area between what has happened, what's happening at the moment, and what's the solution to come, because a solution will have to be found one way or another.
Yeah, no, and, and and I do think we see that not only in Canada, but in several U.S. states. And actually, just yesterday, the Mexican Supreme Court, again, found in favor of or against, better said, uh, the prohibition on adult use cannabis, again, based on a, on a human right to access that, um, and this is my opinion, it's shared by many, but maybe not by some, but that the war on drugs is an abject failure and does more harm than any good. And so we've come 50, 60 years later, and we're realizing that, that the world is different than what we thought it was in 1961, and that the approaches being taken now of regulating, legalizing and regulating cannabis is better for society than uh, prohibiting and imprisoning uh, large swaths of, of our populations. So uh, along those lines, you know, I certainly obviously agree with the approach taken by, by the Canadian government on that, but we're still in a bit of a semi-non-compliant. So what is the solution for this and, and where do you see things going, Willem? Okay, when this legalization was discussed, a lot of presentations were made by academics and role players to the government of Canada to find out what the solution would be. And some, uh, there are only a handful of options that is available for a country intending to do this. And not all of them are, are practical uh, to you. So, so I'll just go quickly through a few of them. The first and obvious thing is you can withdraw from the conventions. So you're no longer part of the conventions and therefore you are not restricted to regulating cannabis. But as I said before, there are definite downsides to this. Apart from being probably the black sheep of the world for doing that, especially if you're Canada, or one of the bigger countries. Apart from that, you will then also lose the protection of other drugs. And, and the intention is definitely not to regulate and legalize all drugs. We're only talking about cannabis. So to withdraw from the conventions is probably a last resort and, and hopefully would not happen. There is also an approach that Bolivia uh, took some years ago when they wanted to legalize coca leaf. Now, coca leaf in Bolivia was a cultural thing. It is a cultural thing throughout history. People has been using the product but it's also classified as a drug. And there is a provision in the conventions where if you join the convention at the time of joining, you can say, I will join the conventions, but apart from this one drug that is part of our culture and is entrenched in our constitution, we will not have that drug included in our obligations regarding the conventions. And Bolivia, what they did is they first tried to amend the conventions and get permission, which, which didn't succeed. And then they withdrew from the conventions. And then they altered their constitution, making coca leaf a, a constitutional right of its citizens. And then it rejoined the conventions. This requirement that, okay, we'll rejoin the conventions, but this specific drug is, is excluded. And that's the only way you can do it. A country who is part of the conventions can't, once it has become a member, amend its own obligations towards the convention. So now that is something that might work, but it, you know, it's very laborious. It was definitely not taken well. It might not work again. And also, hopefully we are looking for a solution that would benefit not only Canada, but the growing number of countries who are now considering legalization of cannabis. And if all of those countries have to go through this process, it's not ideal, but it, it could potentially work. Another way to do it is, is to amend the conventions. Technically it's possible, in practice it is not because there are many countries who still have the death penalty for drugs, including cannabis. There are many countries and big role players who are very set against the legalization of cannabis. So to get the kind of majority you need to amend the conventions to exclude cannabis is just not a viable option at all. So, so that is also not the possibility. 
Now that brings me to the what I hope is the ultimate solution. And this is also the view that academics also hope will work. And that is to create a treaty within a treaty. The, the interpretation of conventions in general allow for this, and it's also allowed expressly in the single convention. So what it means is that certain countries, uh, member states of a convention, can amend the convention as to apply as between themselves. Using this argument, we could say that, all right, let's say cannabis, and uh, sorry, let's say Canada and some of the other countries who legalize cannabis are still members of the convention as between themselves and in their own countries, cannabis is excluded from that. So this has never been tried before. This technique has never been tried as far as the drug conventions are concerned, but theoretically it's possible. It, it, there is provision for it. So let's be positive about that. But because if it works, then it also creates the way for other countries to, to do the same thing, because then you have a structure in place within the drug conventions, which only affects cannabis, which only affects the countries who chose to legalize it, not the other countries, and also protects the conventions themselves. Because you have to remember if a lot of countries withdraw from the conventions, let's say the USA and Mexico decides to also legalize, that will bring the conventions themselves in a risky area, it could negate the value of the drug conventions as a whole. So that's also something that nobody wants to do. So this is what academics are discussing at least, and I'm sure, and I know it was also recommended when presentations were made to the government of Canada, to the task force looking into legalization. And hopefully that is the route that Canada and the rest of the world will go. Yeah, and, and sort of just to wrap up, well, is it, is it maybe that we're, we're really waiting for the U.S. to legalize at a federal level because then, then it, it will be essentially, you know, all of North America, good chunks of South America, and the U.S. would be a, a pretty strong sponsor of the treaty within a treaty. Uh, and even yesterday, I think one of the most more conservative judges out of the U.S. Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, striking down a, a, a cannabis case, but said that the current federal prohibition makes no sense to him and just needs to be removed. Something along those lines, essentially saying you have 37 some odd states with medical use, I think 18 or so with adult use, this federal prohibition is illogical and makes no sense. So when you have somebody that is outspoken on it, a Supreme, a sitting Supreme Court judge and the current government, is, is, would that be your view, Willem, that, that we're maybe waiting for the U.S. to do what many people are expecting to occur over the next number of years and then that would kick off the treaty within a treaty or is that something that Canada and Mexico and Uruguay could could begin on their own or I guess what are your thoughts there as, as where where we are going with this topic or, or with the convention issue well it's it's a good question Mario um, nobody knows exactly it looks like Mexico is set to to legalize soon uh, that's what it looks like anyway but also remember that countries like Netherlands and Portugal might also because it will solve the problem in, in, in the Netherlands, for instance, if they could just regulate the whole market. Um, and also some countries in Africa, New Zealand had a referendum, they narrowly decided not to legalize cannabis, they could be a potential member of this of this interstate treaty arrangement. But as far as the USA is concerned, it, it's a very interesting topic because it's very clear to academics anyway, why this is the case. And that is because the USA was always a staunch supporter and actually 
probably the biggest pioneer of the drug conveyors. It also invested heavily in getting the uh, the conventions up and running. It was a very outspoken prohibitionist country. And now it is in a very difficult position. If it legalizes on a federal level, then it is now suddenly turning from a turning its back on the conventions that it essentially created, which is a problem on uh, on international level. And but but it's obviously ridiculous if I can put it that way because it is only a matter of time. What are you going to do if all the states inside in the uh, in the federation, if all of these states have legalized cannabis, but it's still not legalized on on federal level. So it also causes a lot of problems for the cannabis industry in the US. Uh, for instance, getting finance and so on. But hopefully, um, and I'm sure it will happen, I just don't know when, but it is, I think, inevitable that the U.S. will have to legalize on federal level, as you say, if there's a lot of outspoken people and a lot of people who are very influential, like the judge, for instance, who who is seeing this. And the the more this happens, the more uh, the closer we are to federal legalization. So if you look at the whole of North America and you've got Canada and the, the US in there, you know, that is a force that you cannot ignore in terms of this. So hopefully Uruguay, um, some some European countries, hopefully the US, maybe not soon enough. Uh, hopefully we will get a solution before that. It might take some years for the US, obviously. Obviously it's not good for us to be in this state of abeyance, you know, this gray area for too long. We want to find a solution as soon as possible. And I hope we don't have to wait for the US to legalize on a federal level. I think the resistance which we might have had 10 years ago from the US, if we talked about interstate treaty modification, will not necessarily be there anymore. And in that respect already, you know, the US might be a kind of an ally in this quest to find a solution. No, I, I agree, Willem. Well, well, with that, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up this episode. And again, really thank you very much, Willem, for your expertise. It's something that I think it's often, at the very least, sometimes with the folks that overlooked the, the UN conventions and, and the issues that it raises. But it's really good to bring that back as part of the discussion as we talk with uh, other uh, Meritas uh, firms and lawyers, as um, I'm sure the issue will will continue to come up and more so for other countries and others. But uh, this is really important. And thank you very much, Will. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, Mario, I just wanted to mention one other thing quickly, and that is if you contrast now the regulatory approach that Canada is adopting, because it is adopting the full regulation approach. If you look at the results and you, you're in a better position to, to look at that, you're in Canada, but you know the, the advertising is, is regulated, the safety of the product is regulated. You ca- cannot use any kind of agrochemical on the product anymore. The, the product is taxed, the minimum age is set. The tax can be used for rehabilitation facilities and for and drug awareness programs and so on. So there's a lot of benefits to that. And what you said earlier, I just wanted to touch on finally, is that the policing of this in an effort to prohibit drugs, the policing that you have to uh, have in place can all be moved to see more serious crimes. And so you're also alleviating the pressure on your state uh, resources as well. So so I, I just think that hopefully Canada will be an example to the rest of the world of how exactly regulation is worth, is much better than prohibition. It might take a few years for that to to fully transpire, but that's what we are all hoping for. 
No, and uh, we're we're trying. So <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again, Willem. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much, Willem. That was really interesting. And it's a very important topic to keep in mind as different countries around the world consider the legalization of cannabis. Willem van Rensburg is a member of the firm The Chambers of Ermila Bilal. For more on Willem and his firm, you can go to templegroup.mu. I'm Mario Torres from Brazo Cellar Law in Ottawa, Canada. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Meritas, thank you for listening. Find this week's show notes and a variety of other free resources on the News and Insights section of the Meritas website, www.meritas.org. Be sure to join us next week to learn more about cannabis regulations around the globe. Thank you again for listening and have a wonderful day.